This episode is rated T for Teen, where your character customization won't get you sent to church. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the E3M Gaming Podcast, where we talk about all things throughout the ga- video gaming world and beyond. Tonight, I'm joined by three other non-quest giving NPCs. Aaron, how are you doing tonight, buddy? I'm doing well. I've had a good week. What about yourself? Ah, doing all right. Doing all right. Been home with the family, trying to get a few things done. Getting ready for Christmas. How about yourself? I am also getting ready for Christmas. Um, I did take this week to kind of focus a little bit more on getting into the gym. I know it's a little bit outside of the gaming news, but I know you and I are both big runners. And for me to go to the gym, I always wake up at four in the morning. And side note, since the five came out, I have not been waking up that early every morning because I've been up too late every night. But this week, I've kind of started. I know. <laughs> Ruined. But no, this past week, I've gotten to the gym like three or four times. So that's been good. But I'm going to try to try to do that again. Obviously, I'm not waking up that early tomorrow. I just won't go to sleep if that's the case. I've got a house full of little kids, so I'll be getting up that early anyway. But I won't be hitting the gym till about nine o'clock. All right, Chad, buddy, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Tim. Doing real good. I uh, have not been able to go to the gym because of COVID. So. I am exercising my fingers a lot on the video games. If it makes you feel any better, I don't leave the house to work out. I just wind up sliding a treadmill down the stairs and hoping that it doesn't break. I have a, I have a treadmill right across from my game, my gaming PC. It's a little dusty. <laughs> no, fair enough. What do you got on tap for the rest of the week, man? We are kind of locked down because we can't have a lot of guests over. So it's just us and the kids. Christmas shopping's done. So we're going to do... Christmas light driving around tomorrow night. We're going to like a Christmas tree farm thing that has a scavenger hunt. So we're going to do some Christmas based activities for the next few days. Nice. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, should be. Seth. Yeah. How you been? Doing good, buddy. Thank you. It's new in your world. How's the war Um, zone treating you? The war zone is the war zone. You know, I've taken a couple months of break from it and uh, I think my blood pressure was doing better. I probably also need to uh, pull down my treadmill that's beside the Xbox and actually use that. Uh, you know, looking forward to have some holiday time from work. So probably need to uh, do a little bit more of the treadmill instead of the gaming and homemade candy eating. But hey, I've cut back on my Doritos and Mountain Dew gamer life. So I feel like I'm headed in the right direction. What's your background? We might talk about that tonight. Okay, cool. Fair enough. Until then, I'll, I'll let y'all ponder that. Um, it, it kind of looks like a treasure planet, but no, um, no, it's not. You're hitting, you're hitting in the right area, but uh, no, not, not quite. But uh, it might, it might have a direct correlation. We're gonna roll into our main topic for the night here in a minute. But guys, it has been a busy, busy week in the gaming world. I mean, Seth, there's been a bunch of stuff going on in the wonderful world of Call of Duty. I mean, w- what have you been seeing? What's yeah, the latest? I have not played much Warzone since Cold War. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops launched and Warzone launched a new map for trios, Rebirth Island. Uh, The map only has 45 people and so roughly uh, 15 teams due to it being trios. But it's it's a small map. It's it's slightly bigger than uh, downtown, if you will. But it's a it's a nice sweaty time because uh, of the small nature of it and how much people are dropping in. There's also a, a interesting component with the Rebirth where as long as you have a, a member alive, you automatically will come back to life after a rebirth timer completes. 
so that's been interesting you know for me uh chad can chad can comment on this but for me the cold war weapons haven't really affected the the meta of guns that much the mac 10 however is absolutely overpowered and will be nerfed this week you can write it down clip it it's going to be nerfed this week but uh you know they added the raid map to black ops cold war it's a lot of fun you know it's it's nice to see some new life in warzone warzone has been pretty fun yes i will say though against mr seth cold war weapons are hands down op they are they're the meta. I'm not even using any modern warfare weapons right now. So, Act 10 is a Cold War weapon as well that you unlock in the Battle Pass, but it'll probably be nerfed. Will be nerfed this coming week now. It won't be nerfed on Tuesday. I would say maybe the week after Christmas. Those guys are on vacation right now, I'm pretty sure. There's a lot of other bugs that need to be fixed before that, but Cold War weapons are definitely the meta right now. Well, what weapon would you say is the meta? Because I've, I've played with them. Uh, everything I've seen for ARs, the S tier still follows with the, you know, Kilo, the Grav, you know, all of the previous Modern Warfare weapons. What weapons are you using that I need to put in my loadout tonight? You need to use the the DMR, um, the tactical rifle. Honestly, all three tactical rifles are great. The DMR, the M16, and the AUG, which the AUG in Modern Warfare is a set, um, SMG, but in Cold War, it's a tactical three-burst um, shot. That's great. AK-74U is beast. And the stoner. The stoner might be, hands down, the best LMG that I've ever played with. What does the stoner do? It can blast 100 rounds with very little recoil. That name's misleading. It is slow to ADS. There's some old Simpsons reference out there. All right. You know, it sounds like you guys have got a lot going on over there, over in uh, the Cold War. Love to hear how things change over the next week or two as they push out some balancing patches as, as if uh, and let everyone get used to the map a little bit. AC Valhalla pushed out their seasonal event earlier this week. They've got the Yule Festival that runs until January 7th, and they've basically thrown a snow-covered skin over the entire settlement. They've got drinking games, archery games, and some additional side quests going on where you can earn some special event-related loot and cosmetics for your ship and your settlement. So I dove into it for a little while today, enjoyed the first mission, and uh, I'll probably dabble in that uh, a little bit more here as the weeks go on. Aaron, buddy, Cyberpunk uh, 2077, our big topic last week. They have had a bizarre week, to say the least. There is a lot going on in the world of Cyberpunk, dominating the headlines. What have you seen? Guys, I'm just going to preface this by saying I've always wanted to work like in a video game studio for one of these developers, but I am not jealous right now of anybody that works at CD Projekt right at the moment. Like not even close. Um, I'm not going to spend too long talking about this because I feel like we've beaten Cyberpunk to death, much like the rest of the world at the moment. But we talked about it in almost every episode so far. We're going to talk about it again tonight. We'll probably talk about it next week's episode just because of where I think we're going with it. But after that, hopefully... No more cyberpunk for a while. We'll see what the world brings to us. But it's well known at this point. There's glitches galore. We've talked about that. But this week after the, what was it? The president let out that announcement that they were going to offer refunds. If you they didn't get a refund to you on time, go out to PlayStation, go out to Xbox, and then they would issue a refund. And people got crazy mad about that. PlayStation kind of stepped back and said, whoa, I don't know what you're saying here. And then PlayStation has decided that they are now going to pull Cyberpunk 2077 from its online store. So you can no longer download or buy 
Cyberpunk 2077 from the PlayStation Store. You can, however, do it if you have an Xbox, but Xbox has also said that they're going to offer full refunds for anybody that purchased the game that doesn't want to play it anymore, even if you've already beaten the game at this point, which is crazy. I don't know. I've heard a lot of people say that this is kind of a malicious thing for PlayStation because Cyberpunk kind of put it on them that they had to, or CD Projekt Red put it on them that they had to issue these refunds. So it kind of pigeonholed them. I don't think it's malicious in any way. Bottom line is that they're a business and they have their bottom line, which is their profit dollar at the end of the day. And they're just trying to save their company's image by offering the refunds. And then they don't want anybody buying a broken game, which is a shame to see because I know that all of us last week when we talked about general consensus is that we really do enjoy this game. Um, None of us think that this is a broken game from what we played, although we did experience some glitches and I'm sorry that some of you guys have seen less than stellar performances on your end. I did actually get to speak to somebody this week who bought the game for Xbox One S, and they mentioned the same glitches that we've mentioned on PlayStation and on PC. But he said, you know, at the end of the day, he said the glitches were there, there was bugs there, but it wasn't enough for him to uh, warrant wanting a refund or not enjoying the game. And, you know, I know that IGN put out this week uh, a 4 out of 10 for the base consoles. And from what I'm hearing, the worst part of it is the base consoles. Even Google Stadia is running the game extremely well. So there is problems with the game. But I think a lot of this, just as the overhyping of the game occurred, I think there's an overhype of the bugs. And the first time somebody runs into a bug, they're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. I need a refund right now. A lot of people are not giving this game a chance. And, you know, it definitely deserves one. Which I'm surprised that CD Projekt Red, which another follow-up story, they released their hotfix 1.5 two days ago, I believe, at the time of this recording. And that was supposed to fix a couple of the bugs that came out. It also created some bugs, which if you can believe that. Um, But I'm surprised that they came out with any, because as Tim was saying last week, a lot of these developers are going on vacation. They're done working at this point, but they're still putting out this content to try and fix it and make this a better game. I feel bad for the developers who put so much time and effort, and then this is what comes out. This is what the world's saying about them. Do you guys feel like this has actually damaged the reputation for CDPR? The reputation of the studio, I mean, that goes without a doubt. I mean, they were held at such a high podium after the Witcher 3 release. I mean, they were on Rockstar game level of being able to walk on water with the gaming community. And I think what a lot of people miss is that there's human beings behind the creation of this game. I mean, there's several hundred people whose livelihoods depend on this game. You know, they put their heart and soul into creating this. And yes, 2020 was a horrible year. A lot of unforeseen circumstances that people just haven't been able to deal with. And a lot of things that should not have gotten to market the way that it was. You know, these are all true. But still, you have to take a step back and look at, you know, the real life human beings that are affected on the creation side of this. You know, this is their legacy. I will say the week before this game came out, the last thing I said to you guys on the podcast, you can go back and look at it, was I'm worried that this game is going to have problems. What do you think? Do you think that it can hold up to its end of the bargain? And it didn't called it here's the million dollar question what if they delayed again what would the gaming community have done then the problem is that that they delayed in small increments they should have given them one larger increment and pushed it back to next year they instead they did like a two three week increment not the first time this game was originally supposed to come out in april of this year oh, that's and they true. pushed it to august and then august went to november and then we got the late delayed to december honestly but still, the when they push games back it's usually like a season not not a matter of weeks which again, the first one. 
Battlefield Five is the last one I can think of that was delayed a couple of weeks right before launch, and it rolled from like a late October to a mid December uh, launch, and it had similar issues at launch, but they were able to get a lot of that content fixed. But that was a multiplayer game. Most of the issues were on the multiplayer side. This is a single player PVE experience where a lot of the problems that CDPR is facing now were kind of solved by other developers about a decade ago. That Battlefield wasn't during COVID times. It wasn't during a time when the majority of the developers are working from home and they're trying to keep up with all this. They should have looked at it and said, hey, this isn't a normal time. We should give ourselves some extra buffer moon. But they needed to get the game out. They had pressure from the community. They had pressure from the shareholders. Speaking of shareholders, I want to kind of get on to the next part of this. Um, and that's that we have officially heard. It was kind of a rumor floating around for a couple of days, but in Poland where the CDPR offices that attorneys are floating the idea of a potential lawsuit against CDPR and not just in Poland, but in the USA too. So we have one formulating here in the States for two separate reasons in Poland. They're formulating the idea because they're saying that CDPR kind of misled people to believe what they were getting with the game. Now, I don't know if they were really misleading us. If the game performed the way that it should, I'd say it would be on par for what we get from other games. Of course, the previews are always going to look better than it actually does. Those renderings are done on PCs, not on the actual consoles or games. But back in the States, the lawsuit that's formulating is they're trying to reach out to shareholders and say, how much money are you losing here? And then they're going to try and sue the company for that. So none of these are going ahead just yet, but they are floating the idea. And there is a potential, which I feel like would just be the cherry on top of the year. For CDPR right now. And just to clarify, these are not class action lawsuits by gamers. These are investors that are potentially going to uh, bring lawsuits against CDPR. And I think if, if you're going to keep an eye out on any lawsuits coming out of Europe, I wouldn't be surprised if the term not fit for purpose is what headlines the complaint when they file that lawsuit. So it'll be very interesting to see where either one of these go. Again, you, know, you hit the nail right on the head. I do not envy anyone who works for CDPR right now. This has just been a disaster of for them. And with that, I mean, CDPR was a huge open world game. And that brings us into our topic tonight of the whole genre of the open world games. You know, how did we get to the point that we are today with them? Are they too big? Are they just right? You know, let's talk about that experience a little bit. And everyone's got a first experience when they encountered an open world game. It might have been a true open world game as we understand today. And we'll go into some of those details here in a moment. Or they could have been older games that had open world elements into them that didn't quite fit the mold uh, that we would define this genre in today's day and age. And I'm going to go with some age before beauty tonight. Chad, buddy, it's the first game you can recall that was either a true open world game or had substantial open world elements to them. And while you're at it, you know, tell me what, what makes an open world game to you. So my first open world game experience that I can remember would have been Spider-Man 2, 2004 game based upon the movie that came out by, uh, developed by Treyarch, my Call of Duty developers. Uh, they developed the Spider-Man 2 game based upon the movie, like I said, and that was... New York City, you know, you swing as Spider-Man across the whole entire city. You can do random, you know, saving, saving a lady's purse from getting um, snatched by a mugger on the street. Um, then you had the missions where you fought actual bad guys. And now it wasn't fully open world in the sense that you can go down every 
every alleyway. You couldn't go down in every building. Honestly, you couldn't go into many buildings unless they were mission-oriented. But the sheer fact that I could swing a Spider-Man across the entire metropolis of New York City was, in my mind, awesome. Um, that is my... That the defining characteristic for you? Is that what made the game stand out to you compared to other games you had experienced up until that point? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that game... I always remember saying, man, they need to make another game like this. They need to make another game like this. And sure enough, they came out with Spider-Man 3, which was honestly, in my opinion, a little bit better than Spider-Man 2 on the open world aspect of it. But yeah, th this this game actually changed my whole gaming persona, so to speak, because I used to just be like the action adventure type of guy and, you know, first person shooter guy. But this, you know, this opened the doors for me to start getting into GTA and the Fallout games um, the Oblivion games, and honestly, another superhero game that's better than Spider-Man are the, the Arkham Knight series. Those games are huge open-world games as well that are, in my opinion, that are... Excuse me? You know, the super, I, think, I think superhero games should be made like the Spider-Man game. So for you, it was the traversal was the big takeaway. It was that big element was being able to traverse in a method that you had not been able to experience before. The non-linear follow this path, you know, go in this door. It was, it was awesome. I loved it. Awesome. Awesome. Seth, how about you, man? What was your first experience with this genre? My first experience was Super Mario Sunshine. And back on the GameCube, I remember playing it. And I remember uh, the biggest thing that I took away from it was the fact that you could search areas that you may not find unless you were looking for them. And, you know, I think as I progress in open world games, you know, now, mostly playing Elder Scrolls, Fallout, of course, Cyberpunk. That's the biggest thing to me is the optional missions, the choice in how to play. You can literally role play a game. You choose how you want your character to, to be, whether you want them to be the nice guy or the bad guy, and you can play that out. You know, the developer gives you the option on how you want to approach situations, and you play that out within that. And then, you know, with those games, you have the option of how long it takes you and how in-depth you want to get. You know, if you want to really invest time in a game, you can really get your money back out of an investment. Very nice. Very nice. Aaron, that brings us up to you. What's your earliest memory, your fondest memory of the open world genre? Well, before I say that, I just want to say, Chad, you clearly haven't played the newer Spider-Man games yet. Remember, I've never owned a PlayStation. I, 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 will, I would buy one just That's for okay. these Spider-Man games. You. Yeah. I will forgive you. But um, as far as that question goes, that's kind of a hard one for me to nail just exactly because I've been playing games longer than I can remember what most of the games were when I was a little kid. And my older siblings listening to this may tell me that I'm dead wrong on this, but I think that the first open world game I fully played was the Ocarina Time, which also arguably maybe is, maybe isn't an open world, but I consider it an open world because you can go anywhere at any point with the exception of areas that you have to unlock, which is why some people may argue it that it's not an open world. Either way, it definitely has open world elements to it. It does. And I think that those earlier games um, for open worlds, it was kind of a little bit more loose of what the term was. It's still loose today. We don't have a hard set definition. I try to look up a hard set definition of what makes an open world game, and there is none. As a matter of fact, if you look it up right now, that's what you're going to get. There's no hard set definition to what makes an open world. That being said, going back, you got Jet Rocket, which was back in 1970. Tim, that even predates you. 
by a minute or two. Yeah, I mean, see, we're going PT, pre-tem. Jeez, I've got my own unit of measurement. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. On my half birthday, nonetheless. Aw, you know, you're welcome. Pre-tem, PT. Minutes, 15 minutes from now, I'll be closer to 40 than I will be 39. So thank you very much for, for aging me uh, as we stand here recording tonight. And I look I'll back at my sure. own past, seeing how we're going down seeing how we're going that far down memory lane. I was looking at my own past and I was going to bring up the legend of Zelda because of the traversal elements, but it really wasn't my first experience with the genre. And I'm going to go back to a game I mentioned two weeks ago. No, it's not deadly towers. I'm not doing that to you guys again. We beat that horse to death. I talked way too long about that the last time it came up. So I promise I won't do that. In we'll this talk episode. it again when the reboot comes out. Yeah. Don't hold your breath. I might be the only person on the planet looking for the reboot of that game. Uh, I'm actually going to go with the Goonies 2, and it's for a similar reason. It's for the ability to have that traversal. You know, you were able, it was a side-scrolling game, both vertically and horizontally, but you were able to go anywhere that you had access to. And this wasn't a true open-world game. You could find any of the Goonies in any of the orders that you wanted, but you did need certain items to unlock certain areas and reach certain locations. So it wasn't truly open-world but it had the elements. And for 1987, that was a big deal, being able to go anywhere. It wasn't the Super Mario Brothers World 1-1. You have a definitive start and end point. There was an exploration element to it. And a lot of the theme that I heard as we discussed our first experience with these games was traversal, exploration, and being able to do things in a non-linear fashion. And I think if we take... an the vast majority of what we would consider open world games today, they would have those three elements right there. Um, and I singled out one game in particular that kind of bridged the gap between games that largely had open world elements and something that we would all largely agree would be an open world game. Uh, and that would be Grand Theft Auto 3. Uh, came out in the early 2000s and I was in college at the time when this game released. And it blew everybody away because you could go anywhere. You could do anything. There were basically no rules. Does anyone else have any experience with this game or playing these this type of game during this time frame? I actually played GTA 3 on my iPhone about two years ago. They re-released it for mobile a couple years ago. And it's, you know, GTA to me is, is very much an open world game. Aaron, there is a definition for open world games uh, referenced on the uh, the great encyclopedia named Wikipedia, but uh, it actually references it actually Must references a book it actually references a book called the Complete History of Open World Games, and it it defines an open world game as a game mechanic using a virtual world that the player can explore and approach objects freely, as opposed to a world with more linear and structured gameplay. All right, the you know Ocarina of Time counts, so you can go anywhere, kind of. One thing, one thing that I think has changed about games, though, is the freedom of the story. I think that early open world games lacked that freedom of the choices you make affecting the story. Uh, I think, especially with Grand Theft Auto, from the ones I've played, uh, while it is open and you do have choices, your choices always lead you to the same places. Yeah, and my first forte into uh, Grand Theft Auto was actually Vice City, which came out almost exactly one year after three. So I wasn't far behind you guys, but Vice City was my first one. Yeah, actually, my first GTA game would have actually been the same PSP Grand Theft Auto, Auto Liberty City stories that Tim had mentioned before. Uh, that was my first Grand Theft Auto. That was probably the, the Grand Theft Auto I dug the most into. 
I actually own all the Grand Theft Autos on Steam just because, yeah, Steam sells. Uh, they're evil. But the only one that I've actually ever dug into was GTA Liberty City Stories and uh, GTA 5. Yeah, GTA 3 was probably my first time endeavor into a game like this. Before I go on on that, I will say that IGN does list Ocarina of Time as a 3D open-ended free-roaming world game. So, we're good. All my worries are gone. You can, you can sleep. It, they also say Super sleep. Mario 64 is one as well. So keep that in mind. What year did that come out? 96. Mm-hmm. Oh, then that was my first one. See, I told you I was going to be wrong. Well, your brothers didn't have to tell you that, or your siblings didn't have to tell you that. Can tell you all of them. They're gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> Give me the wrong answer. But I mean, we were talking. So we were talking about um before we go on. We were talking about how GTA was like the pinnacle for open world games. It's kind of our baseboard going off in this, and it kind of spun off a lot of uh a lot of spoofs. Did you guys ever play the uh man? What was it called? Saints Row. Is he you may have Saints Row. Thank you. Row. Oh my god, you can put that in because. My brain farts okay. Yeah, Saints Row, that is a huge kind of spoof. And it didn't start off that way. Saints Row 1 and 2 um, was very much kind of like GTA, where you were like a gang member and everything. But when you got up to Saints Row 3, it got weird. I'll agree with that. Just remember, GTA 1 and 2 were not the game that we know today. It was a completely different franchise. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a top-down driving game as opposed to an open 3d world i mean that's why gta 3 stands out because it was really that jumping off point for the world that we understand today humble beginnings Tim. and seth you mentioned a lot of good things about the story about the the sense that you've got a main story arc but no matter what you do you always wind up at the same point and that's the next question i've got for you guys is how have the main stories in these games evolved over time choices endings overall arc i mean what what are your thoughts on that? Seth, why don't you lead us off? Cause you had that initial thought. You know, I really like the direction that a lot of games are going uh, with given cyberpunk. That's the one we've most recently played. You know, you have those three different life paths. Uh, again, we, as we discussed last week, we found quickly that a lot of your early choices still lead you to the same early spots. But uh, you know, as you start building out the skill tree, you really start building out totally different characters. Because, you know, Aaron has been mostly focused on on hacking while, you know, Chad has been focusing on his assault. You know, you really have a choice in how you play these games. Whereas, you know, those early open world games, you got the same gun, the same person give you the same gun. You know, you had the same uncle calling you to go bowling. You know, we had those same, you know, everybody had the same experience. I feel like with the newer open world games, everybody can have a different experience and they retain a lot of replayability because of that. You know, you can finish out, you know, your ranged archer and go back and play as a brawler. You know, there's so much more you can invest in a game when you have that. And so I really think that they have really done a good job of, of really writing those stories and writing multiple stories and, and multiple ways of playing these games. And, you know, it, it does make them longer sometimes. Uh, and sometimes it makes them shorter because they have so many different stories to write. Uh, but I think, you know, it has evolved a lot from what these early open world games were. Now, every story has to have an ending. And we've always been used to games having the single ending. You know, you reach the pinnacle, you beat the final boss. Yeah, you roll credits. That's not the case anymore. I'm still confused with uh I mean, the way uh, had three endings. I mean, I don't even know how many endings Cyberpunk has. Um, there were two different endings 
in Ghost Recon Wildlands. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, your cho- your choices really do impact where your story goes. Um, Assassin's Creed uh, Odyssey had at least five different endings based on your choices uh, throughout. It was at least three. I want five sticks in my head, but I think it was at least three endings for the for the main campaign. I mean, Chad, what do you think about those choices that you get in the storylines now and, about, and how it impacts your game? Yeah, I 100% honest. I When I play a, a game like this, and I'm going to use Oblivion um, for my example on this because I went back and I wanted to see which game I had the most hours in. I have my, my one save game from Oblivion. I have lots of save files, but like the main one that I use all the time is sitting at 142 hours right now on my Xbox. So, and I have beaten it. So that I will say that I have beaten it. I don't know what hour mark I beat it. Um, but the storylines and everything like that, I'm I love the talking concept. And like I talked about last week with Cyberpunk, I use my characters influential conversation pieces if they're available. I love going down that those those you know spirals if there are. But one thing about these type of games for me is main quest in my mind is the smallest factor of the game. I if I'm if I'm playing if I'm playing Oblivion and say I have to go from town A to town B and I can't think of any names of towns right now and I know they're difficult anyways. But if I have to go from town A to town B, I never fast travel. Never fast travel. I walk and I will go into every cave, cavern, tent, building along the way. And I read, you know, you know, when you're playing those games, Fallout, Oblivion, have them. They have the books and the scrolls on the ground. You open them up and you'll read them and you'll get plus one charisma or you'll get a new side quest. That is my mission. That is my main quest. My main quest is to find as many quests that I can do and do them all. So I love I love the aspect of just seeing where these quests are going to take me and ultimately taking as long as I can to get to the end. You have two of the same problems that I have that one, your cyberpunk uh, save file is probably too big uh, to be stable yeah, at this point. It's pretty big. And secondly, you just get utterly lost in the world and you just have to explore it because it's there. So with oblivion, you know, to make that point, you know, I have 58 hours and I completed the game compared to the number of hours you have in the game. You know, I did not play oblivion when it first came out. I played it when Skyrim came out and I played it as a precursor to uh I just didn't have the money at the time, so I bought Oblivion so I could play it until I could afford Skyrim. And so I still beat it in 59 hours because I was ready to jump into Skyrim. You know, and that's to me shows, you know, we both beat the game, but such vastly different times. You know, I think that's one aspect of open world games. You know, we talk about the mature gaming, dad gaming. You know, some of us don't have as much time as others to play the game. So we all have different amount of hours I'm sure we'll beat these games at. The one thing I wonder with you beating it at what you said, 58 hours, if you and I go back in and log log in, I didn't look at this. I should have looked at this when I looked at how many hours I had on my save file. What level were you? You know what I'm saying? Like, did you beat the, the game at level 22 right. and I'm 50? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Like, that's that's another thing that you can think of. Like, can you beat the, the game at such a low level because you sped right through it? Now, one game I will say that I did speed through because I did not enjoy it was Red Dead Redemption 2. I know a lot of you guys love that game. Oh, did not enjoy that. Hold main, main quest it all the way through that thing. I didn't do very many side missions at all. Go ahead and squash this fire before it gets it's before it gets way too out of hand. Since we're talking main stories here, and also to pull Chad out of the fire on that one, what's a good length? 
what would you be willing to spend time on for a main story? Well, going back to what I said, I went through and looked at uh, Fallout um, New Vegas, and I'm at 127 hours on that completed. And I did not check Red Dead Redemption, but like I said, I main quested that. I think, oh, Skyrim, I was at over 100 hours as well. So in my mind, I I expect to be at close to 100 hours on Cyberpunk too, because I'm doing as much as I can in that as well. My mind would be that's main arc. That's main arc. Hundred hours or total oh, total experience. experience. I would say hundred hundred plus hours. Main arc. Okay, so just the main arc. Oh, yeah. forgive me. I did not realize that you wanted main arc. The main reason why your protagonist is in the game. Okay, I want a game that is forty hours. For me, that's the sweet spot. If I'm not going into any extra stuff, a forty-hour game is good. Um, you have what was it? Um. Final Fantasy VII Remake. That was a 40-hour game. A little under 40 hours. But I beat that one, and then I went back and I played up to like 60, almost 70 hours. But I maxed out my characters, so I can't get any higher level than I am. Then you have a smaller game like Miles Morales, Spider-Man Miles Morales, that came out last month. And I platinum that in twenty less than 20 hours. Both open-world games. Nope. Sorry. Uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake is kind of an open-world game because you can go anywhere anywhere in the world once you've beaten the game, but I wouldn't throw it into the same kind of genre because it doesn't have that feel of it. It's a lot of load screens, a lot of jumping around different areas. But yeah, Miles Morales, very short game. Seth, how about you? Main, main story arc, willing to invest. I'm probably going to say about the same thing for the main story, somewhere between 35 and 40 hours. You know, I mentioned Fallout New Vegas in our remake discussion a couple weeks ago as one of my favorite games I've ever played. It was also one of my first entries into a modern open world game where you had the choice in how you played it, so to speak. I only have 40 hours in that game. I didn't know that there was so many side quests. I didn't know there was so much crafting that could be done. Like I said, it was my first open world. So I've got 40 hours in the game, yet that is one of my favorite games I've ever played. You know, it's it's a game I really need to dig back into. There's just so many other games in my playlist, but I really think that's a pretty good sweet spot. Now, Chad, I'm coming back to you last on purpose because I got the same problem you do. If I'm in these games, if I'm in these worlds, I'm dumping 80 to 130 hours. Uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey took me 135 hours to platinum. I'm sitting at 50 hours on Valhalla now, and I'm maybe 20% of the way through the main story. But going back to the main arc, what's your sweet spot? I don't feel like I can give you an accurate answer just because the way I play these games, (laughs) but I feel... Like Aaron, Aaron and Seth's answer is probably accurate. I think 40 hours for a main story quest line would be good. I just know for a fact because I do so many of the side quests and I explore so much that that's why it adds up to what it is. So, yeah, I, I would say 40 hours, like a work week for the game would be good. You know, like I said, I, I can't give you an accurate answer, though. Yeah, I mean, because I, I think you and I are going to spend a lot of time uh, as we talk about some of the points later in the episode because we just like to get lost in that world. But yeah, I think that 40, 50 hour mark is about right because once you start getting into those later stages of the games, you start getting that fatigue. It's the, I love this game, I love this world, but when will this end? I'm ready for something else. And I even felt that with Ghost of uh, Tsushima and I loved that game. That was like one of my picks for game of the generation. And as I got close to the end of that, I was like, can we just end this now? I don't want this to end, but it, it needs to end. I got so into Ghost of Tsushima that it's the first game I ever platinumed, which came out extremely recently for the amount of platinums I have now. But I did it on accident. 
because I just went through and did every little thing. And then by the time I beat the game, it had the little platinum trophy pop up. And since we're talking about all the other things, we've talked about the main story arc. What about those side quests? Because your main story takes you on branches and sequels and other rabbit holes that bring you out into other parts of the world. And Aaron, we'll start with you because I know you've platinumed some big open world games or at least finished and platinumed some big open world games here recently. What are your initial thoughts on side quests? Are they meaningful parts of the experience or do you find them to be just ways to fill up the world and create a level gate? I want a game where the side quests are so immersive that I forget what the main quest is. That's where I'm having an example. Cyberpunk. Give me an example. Cyberpunk. Okay. I feel like doing some of these side quests and some of these character arcs that are not necessarily important to finishing the game. If I look back at what I did for the game and you ask me what was main quest and what was side quest, I would get some of them confused. Same thing with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. There's so many of the little um, areas that you can explore, some of the of the um, settlements that you can go after or countries that you can go. You don't have to do those to finish the game but they contribute to the main story so much that it feels like it's part of the main story. And that's what I want to see. So I am all for, for side quests. I, I am all for side quests when you do them right. Yes, we'll, t- we'll talk about that here in a second because for me, that game was Ghost of uh, Tsushima. Nurio's quests were the ones that I had a hard time discerning whether they were main story arc or if they were a side arc. I got really immersed in his side stories. Oh, yeah. And then... um the archer his side quest and then uh lady mazako her side quests so they go so far and build up those characters so much that if you finish the game and you don't play those you don't know those characters you don't know them so i'm going to leave ghost of tsushima off to the side as an example of a game that does side questing right like you feel a sense of immersion you feel a sense of connection with that character and the greater world when those are done is that is that fair enough to say Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like if you're not going to do the side quest, you miss out on a pinnacle part of the game. All right, Seth, your thoughts, side quests. I'm going to back up Aaron up on part of it, and I'm going to disagree with him on another part. I think side quests are phenomenal when they're done right. And personally, I have not seen a side quest yet in Cyberpunk that I did not feel like was a waste of my time other than to gain money. I have not had any side quests that really drove me into the story. Most of them have been brawler or most of them have been go save this person, but none of them have had lasting effects on, on the game to me. Uh, however, to me, Bethesda does side quests right. In both Skyrim and Fallout, Skyrim, you had guilds. The guilds affected your gameplay throughout the rest of it. And there was also some parts of Skyrim where if you did a certain quest line, you, were, you locked out other quest lines because of doing those. They would no longer accept you. Same thing with Fallout. You had Brotherhoods of Steel and such in Fallout 4, which you can see behind me. So, you know, there was a lot of side quests on there that were could have been main story arc, but were optional. And I felt like they really drug you into the story. And I really got lost in Fallout 4 and in Skyrim because of those things. Yeah. I absolutely love the Thieves, you know, and, uh, oh gosh, what was it called for the Assassins? Brotherhood. Yeah, the Brotherhood... In Cyberpunk, have you done Pan Am side quests? Have you done Judy side quests, like the character arcs on the side? Are those not main quest line? No, they're not. They are side quests. Because they they drop into the main quest line organization chart. Oh, really? I don't I don't think that you have to finish their full quest, though, 
when I accept their missions or the only missions I've had from them, when I've accepted their missions, they've dropped into the main quest journal, not into the side quest journals. Gotcha. Well, maybe I'm wrong on that one, but I thought, I thought that those ones were side quests. Maybe I was wrong because those were the ones I was talking about for cyberpunk. Now I'm going to have to go back and take a look at it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, how about your experiences? What were your experiences with uh, side quests? Yeah, uh, I'm going to echo a little bit of Tim. I mean, sorry, of Seth as well, just because I agree with the cyberpunk prediction. Like the side quests in there, in my mind, they're not too super fulfilling. I'm going to do them all. Like, I just don't feel like they're true side quests. Like I, GTA is the same way. I don't feel like GTA really has true side quests either, besides. Go steal this, you know, go go beat up this person, go kill this person. Um, and, you know, that's what cyberpunk to me is in the sense of like Oblivion games and um, Skyrim and the Fallout games. Their side quests are immersive in the sense that you get a whole nother story. Like if you go through the Thieves Guild or any of the guilds, you can get another additional 10 to 15 minutes of story that you would have missed on if you don't do it. Now, I like normally when I'm playing these games, I try to play as middle of the road as possible. I don't want to be too bad, too good. I want to be able to take on as many of these guild missions as possible. I try not to do things that are going to cut somebody else off, as as Seth mentioned, because there are little options in both of those games that will do that. If, if I cannot be a member of all four or five guilds in like in Fallout or in in Skyrim, I'm going to be pretty bummed. So, I. I appreciate the way that they do their their sides uh, their side missions. Like I said, I think I think GTA and like Cyberpunk style games, maybe Watch Dogs. Even I played Watch Dogs one same way. Their side missions are just stat fillers. You know what I'm saying? Get get your money, get your get a new gun or something like that. There, there's nothing really that makes the story bigger. Well, and that was like the next point I was going to touch on because not everybody gets it done right. You mentioned Watch Dogs, uh, which is an Ubisoft game. I'm going to mention two other Ubisoft games because I love them. I mean, they, those are my babies. You know, don't call them ugly, but they're ugly. They Sorry. throw a lot. For it. <laughs> Start the amount of time that I spent on Ubisoft games. I have earned the right to say my opinion on them. <laughs> And also, just to add to that, I'm sorry to cut you off here. I looked it up um, for the cyberpunk ones. IGN and GameSpot do rank the extra character missions as side quests, but that's not to say that they don't ever get them wrong. I'm going to continue to look it up, but continue. I'm sorry, Tim. All right, girls, girls, you're both pretty. (laughs) We're going to move on to Well, no, now I'm just curious. (laughs) Now I just want to know. I want to correct myself. (laughs) All right, I'm going to throw two two games out there that it, at least to me, did a horrible job with side quests. And the first was AC Odyssey because those side quests were there to effectively reinforce a level gate. Like you could not move on in the main story arc until unless you were a certain level. So you had to do a whole bunch of these filler side quests just to rank up. And the, uh, the next one I'll say is Far Cry 5. I mean, some of them were really, really cool the first time you did it. Like the Evil Knievel uh, stunt runs was really, really cool the first time. You didn't want to do the other five or the side quest that took you to the testicle festival, though amusing and really, really funny served no value to the progression of the story other than saying, yeah, I went to the testicle festival and I'm using very liberal use of the word testicle in this episode today, but um, I'm going to throw this out to the floor. I mean, who, who doesn't do it right? Who disappointed you on the side quest side? I'm a hundred percent in agreement with both those games that you mentioned 
honestly, Far Cry 5 was a game that I have not finished because I, it just got too grudgingly boring for me. Um, but Odyssey was is probably, in my opinion, Odyssey or Origins, I don't know, the worst of the of the Assassin's Creed games. Odyssey, yeah. That whole, I can't move on because I'm not high enough level when I've done everything besides these side missions. It's really, really frustrating. Cyberpunk has absolutely been my uh, disappointment. You know, I was getting way ahead of y'all on main story versus the number of hours played. So I tried to slow the game down a little bit and do some more side missions. And honestly, I grew very bored of the game doing those side missions that I've played. And honestly, to the point where it's hard for me to jump back in, uh, you know, but I'm looking forward to jump back in Cyberpunk this week. But to be honest, unless the side missions get more exciting, I'm probably getting ready to start mainlining that uh, main story. I can see. I can agree with that as well. I was uh, I've played a few times since our episode, since we recorded our episode. And if I'm not doing a main mission, I'm getting a tad bit bored. I am Cyberpunk is a game, though, that I am going to all out and try to do them all i feel like there's going to be stuff that i really want to find out to like hidden lore of the town not necessarily in building the story but just learning about more of the areas in the city and i think that for dlc and also maybe cyberpunk 2 whenever that comes out if it does some of this stuff will build into that not necessarily like side missions into that but just like the knowledge you learn from doing some of these side missions some of them are actually purely entertaining like the very first one i did being man who had his you know i still haven't found that one yet the bionics the bionics on his special area the guy who had to rush to the hospital yes mm-hmm. still a teen episode forward to cyberpunk 2078 coming out about two decades um as far as me huh, games with bad side quests i'd say origins Assassin's Creed Origins, although overall I just didn't like that game. Um, I'm going to agree with you, Tim, that Far Cry 5 did a pretty bad job with the side quests. Uh, Although I would go as far as to say that there has been no Far Cry game that has done a good job of side quests since maybe 3. And 3 wasn't the best with them. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And and, we've spent a lot of time here so far talking about the main story, the choices, the side quests, and all those branching elements of the story we need a place to do them in you know there needs to be an interactive world a sandbox in order to run these missions have these stories make these choices um i think we've all done it at some point uh this past week since we decided that this is what we were going to talk about and we went and looked at map comparisons of various open world games that have come out in the last few years and guys these things have gotten massive I've got to take a, a look at Ghost Recon Wildlands. That actually might be a one-to-one scale with the country of Bolivia. I think that was like 450 square kilometers, and that's only a drop in the bucket to some other games out there. What, what are your guys' thoughts on where we're going with these worlds? Are they getting too big? Is there enough stuff to do in them? I'm going to say no. Aaron, you know, lead us off. Yeah, I'm going to say no. And that's just because as long as they can fill them with a lot of good content, I'm going to revert back to Valhalla here. That game is very dense with content. I'm enjoying every second of it. And even though it is a massive map on all the ones that we kind of watched, it falls a little closer to the larger side. It's not nearly as large as some of the big ones, but I'm not having a problem with that one. Now, where I do have a problem is with Assassin's Creed Origins, which I mentioned earlier, not a big fan of that game. You're just traversing through desert for 90% of that game which fits the theming of it. Just to say that you went through the desert. 
just to say that you went through the desert, you're riding, literally riding a camel through a desert for out of your entire gameplay. If you play that game for what, 50, 60 hours, I'm going to argue that 20% of it is just going through a desert doing absolutely nothing. And that to me seems like a waste of your life. I think it's a good point to make size and density are not the same thing. No, they are not. Another game which I actually downloaded um, this week, and I meant to mention it earlier, but I've been playing Just Cause 4 because I wanted to say it was one of my least favorite games, but then again, before this week, I had only put two hours into it before I dropped it. If you look at my PlayStation, my trophies list, which, Tim, you can take a look at it, I only have 2% of the trophies for that game, so I picked it up and I put it back down, and I thought maybe it wasn't that bad. I didn't play enough to give it a fair a fair shot here. So I picked it back up and I was right. I did. I still do not enjoy this game. Um, and that's because for me, just cause three, which I don't know if any of you guys play those games. It's just basically wreaking chaos on these islands and blowing stuff up and flying planes. Just cause three was a great game. Just cause four was really bad. And I thought I was going to be alone seeing as just cause four is on the PlayStation now classics or the PS Plus Classics, where if you had the five, you got it for free if you have PlayStation Plus. And so I thought it was going to be a great game. And then I looked on Metacritic and it has like a 60 and everybody has rated it like a six out of 10. So critically, that's where they rated it. Uh, Fan base rated it even lower. So I guess I'm not alone in saying that it's a bad game. Um, It takes you forever to get to the destinations that you want to be in, like the airports to get a plane, to fly it around the island which for me is the main part of that gameplay. If I have to spend 20 minutes trudging over to an airport, then you did it wrong. So as far as map size and density, definitely like, like Seth said, doesn't don't coincide with each other. I think that games now are honestly on the brink of where they can be hitting. Cyberpunk is a good example. Cyberpunk is huge. I haven't even been around the whole entire map yet. Fallout and games like that. Those are huge. And with the amount of hours I put into those games, I would be okay with that. If I if I had to play a smaller map, and now Fallout 76, we're not talking about that one. That's another topic for another rant, which I think they failed at miserably. That is a very small map. <laughs> that is a very small map, and I don't like it. Like I could get from the top to bottom in that map walking probably 30 to 45 minutes if I don't have to battle anything. And I, I just don't like that. I think, though, that would agree with the with the origin and the odyssey um standpoints again those games are not the best for the open world genre in in critiquing how to do things well um i will also throw in there black flag i did not like that game i don't like the i didn't like traversing over the ocean all the time in the pirate ships but i will say that um sea of thieves however i do love that open world concept of of um, driving those ships or Captaining those ships, I guess, is the word. But yeah, overall, I think that they have not... I don't think there's a game that's, that's too big yet. I think there's definitely some that are too small. And I would like to challenge these developers to push the limits and see if they can make a game even bigger. Like, like we talked about, a Oregon Trail remake. Make me a map the size of the continental United States, man, or from the Mississippi West. Let me traverse that, and I'll tell you how big it is and tell you if it's good or not. This is dense Louisiana purchase. What about, we all looked at the, um, those comparisons, the two larger of the games. You had Minecraft, and then you had No Man's Sky. 
which technically those are games that just kind of generate areas that go on forever. So you have No Man's Sky, which can generate up to 18 quintillion planets. That's ridiculous. And then you have um, Minecraft, which they compared it to the size of Neptune. No one's going to see all those. You're not playing it for an open world experience for what it is. I think we can throw those two out of the equation, just the fact that they're procedurally generated or user generated. I mean, because if you're going to follow that argument, you might as well throw Diablo in there with all the riffs. True. But do you think that's where we're going to be going in the future? Random generation? I don't know what you're going to get. I don't think, I mean, I think you're going to have a defined sandbox uh, no matter what you do. Okay. So you see this as being its own type I'm of genre. I mentioned kind of see it being its own type of genre. Like you're going to have some sort of fixed environment that you're working with. I mean, the f- two of the ones I thought did really, really well were both based in the same city. The original Tom Clancy's The Division and Spider Man for PS4. Both did a phenomenal job with their take on Manhattan and putting enough in those environments where even though it was confined to a segment of Manhattan Island, the world felt large enough where you were actually exploring the city. And then I'm going to give you a good example and a bad example out of the exact same franchise. Ghost Recon Wildlands as the good one and Breakpoint as the dud. With Wildlands, you had the country of Bolivia. Yes, it was all spread out. There wasn't a lot of side questing there, but... For me, it was appealing because it was a network-based operation. You were trying to take down a network, so you had to approach it as such. It was a massive world. There wasn't a lot in between, but you weren't supposed to walk across it. It was intended to be more operation-based. So based on the context of the setting, on what the theme of the game was and how you can approach the operations, I thought that map worked. I thought that setting worked and everything about it clicked. Fast forward two years later to Breakpoint, they did something similar with the map in a fictional location, but they were trying to shoehorn an RPG element in there, and it just didn't work. As soon as they put the ghost mode in, where you could basically play the way you have every other uh, Ghost Recon game in the past, 85% of that environment was completely pointless and didn't add any value to the gameplay experience. So I'm the engineer, so of course I've got the numbers. <laughs> the game you mentioned, it's 105 miles square, right? So Fallout 4 was 43 miles square, but and like Chad said, Fallout 4 to me felt like a huge map because you had to traverse it by walking. Until you hit a fast travel point, you had to walk to wherever you were going. It was 43 miles square, but it felt huge. You know, I'm not sure about Wildlands. Did you have vehicles? I had vehicles. You were intended to drive or fly. That was the intended mode of transport. You could go by foot. It wasn't the purpose. That's the point I'm trying to make is that map size is directly correlated to your ability to traverse it. We, we think of newer games as being huge, but you know, you go back to Elder Scrolls Direfall and it was 62,000 miles squared. But you know, that's an old game. But like Aaron said, a lot of that was randomly generated textures. They did not actually design all of that area. You know, No Man's Sky and uh, Minecraft. Oh, Elite Dangerous. Oh, yeah. Elite Dangerous. Both infinite escapes because they're in space. Microsoft Flight Simulator. It's the Earth. Now, I will say with Microsoft Flight Simulator, they didn't design the areas, but that actually is legit detailed. But you're flying. It doesn't take you long to miss an area because you're flying over it. Open world games are awesome to have big map sizes, but the map size only matters if like the side quests, there is purpose behind it. If you give me a big map with nothing in it and I have to 
run 45 minutes across it for nothing. I don't want to do that. I want to enjoy that 45 minutes. So give me something to do in along it and I'm going to enjoy it. I don't need a huge map. You know, when I, I love the Arkham series. When I first played some of those games, when they got switched to more open world uh, design, some of those, you know, Arkham City feels pretty small compared to a lot of open world games. But there's a lot to do in that small open world. So give me a lot to do. Forget about the map size. Just make sure that you have properly populated and properly made it to where it's going to be a enjoyable experience. And for me personally, that's why I like the formula that they did for Wildlands, because it, it, it really did fall into line with the, the theming. Just to pull the curtain back a little bit, uh, I mean, some of our listeners know that I'm a veteran. I did some time overseas. And you're not going to go from one main mission to another in that environment that's only two, 300 yards away. You know, you're going to have a staging area and you're going to go, depending on what your mission is and where you are, you could potentially be traveling for hours somewhere. Um, in the case of Iraq, you could be in Baghdad and you're going up to Tikrit that night. You're going out to Al-Assad. I mean, you're talking an hour by helicopter. And in the context of that particular theme, being able to develop your loadout, you know, get everything lined up, get on your bird at night and fly to an offset location on the objective is realistic for that environment. Now, just to put it there, just for the sake of putting it there, doesn't make any sense. But for the uh, point of that theming, it worked. And that's why I mentioned Breakpoint as a dud. It didn't work for that game. Wasn't Breakpoint overall dud anyways? It was. I mean, it, it was the uh, the RPG elements that they really tried to force in there. That was the last game that uh, Ubisoft put out where they just made an amalgamation of all the things that worked in their different franchises and just try to tack on the next cool thing and roll it from there. That's why everything in their 2020 slate was delayed. Uh, Watch Dogs, Valhalla, Phoenix Immortals Rising. I mean, that's why all that stuff got delayed until late 2020 was because they had to undo what they did with Breakpoint. But we've been talking about a lot of PVE maps so in here, real quick. Sorry to cut you off there, Tim. Uh, Breakpoint on Metacritic got a 56 for I um for a critic score and a 2.8 for users. I platinum that game just out of pride. <laughs> Same. I, I had invested the time. I platinum that game just to say that it was done. But um, we've spent a lot of time so far talking about only that single player PVE experience, the player versus the environment. Now, for you Call of Duty guys, what about those PvP maps? What about those Battle Royale worlds? How are they developing? How are they growing? Are they getting too big? Because Battlefield was always the flagship series of having the big, massive maps. And now we have Call of Duty Warzone. We've got Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. We've got Apex Legends. We've got Fortnite that all boast their own huge map. I mean, what are the community thoughts on those? Well, I know for my personal experience... Fortnite and Apex and Call of Duty Warzone I've played. I've never played PUBG. But I think the map sizes on those, I had to rank them on best to worst, would probably be Warzone number one, Apex number two, and then Fortnite number three. I think Fortnite is a little little too big. There's a lot of open spaces in Fortnite. And I've, I'm new to Fortnite. I've only been playing like two or three weeks because my son likes likes it now. Um, I feel like there's a lot of open spaces to, to uh, traverse in between towns and buildings and stuff, and it's a loot them. You know, you have to loot up to be able to get your your weapons and your in your 
you know, your shields and all that kind of stuff. I feel like there's a lot of running that is done in that game that are just emptiness. And, you know, yeah, you have to knock down trees or destroy rocks to get your building supplies. But I think I think Fortnite's too big. Or, and especially with the fact that they only put 100 people in it. If they were Warzone and put 150 people in it, it would be a lot better. There's only 100 people. So I've, I've, I've seen my son uh, get in second place, and he never saw a single person in the whole entire game until the end when he got killed. So as far as Warzone, Warzone, I would say map size is almost it's, – it's really good. I think it could be a tad bit bigger, but they're fixing that by pulling up holes in the ground and putting more – Buildings and stuff that you can go into, and not buildings necessarily, like opening up the stadium, I mean, and then opening up a new hole in the airport. You can go underneath and opening up some other areas to go to. Overall, there's 150 people in Warzone, and you can have slow games where you don't see anybody till two or three circles in. But for the most part, I think Warzone does a pretty good job of maximizing the space to people ratio. Apex, I put in the middle because I've seen it both ways. I've seen Drops on now. I haven't been playing Apex that long either, but I've had drops on Apex where I've I've won games and only seen the last team I've killed. But I've also won games where I've been fighting the whole time. So that one, I think the map is is kind of big. They also do not have 150 people. It's 100 people, but I think it's smaller than Fortnite. At least it feels like that to me. And you see people more frequently. So Seth can probably weigh in some more on Warzone. I think that Warzone is doing hands down the best open world battle royale option that is out there right now yes there's a lot of glitches and bugs and stuff like that which is a whole nother topic but as far as map size to player ratio i think they do a really good job you know and i think you hit the nail on the head with map size versus player ratio that is the key part of that <clears throat> like you said with fortnite it's huge open spaces there's not much difference it's just hills and valleys and that's it if you win your opening drop you're probably going to get to the final circle. You just got to run there. You know, there's not a lot of battles between that. You know, but Warzone, you can clearly show that ratio because there was a limited time mode with 200 players. It was too many players in Verdansk. Now we have custom lobbies where there's only 50 players minimum, whatever it is, and there's too much space. But when you have that 150 player count, it's just about right. You have an opening drop that you have to fight. And then you have good fights all the way through. The one thing I wish they would change about Warzone is I wish they would not show you that first circle more like Fortnite because that forces people to drop uh, a lot more into that main circle. So when the circle happens to be only a third of the map, it makes for a really tight drop. Uh, you know, and you see with Rebirth Island, you know, it's a lot smaller. They've only got 45 people on it. Honestly, Rebirth Island is just a little small for that 45 people. But, you know, I think it depends on how we look at these games, you know, depending on that. But it's really that player count that makes the difference. Like Chad said, I think Warzone's got that formula down pat. And I'd like to see more games like that. Seth, I've got a question for you. And Chad, you can feel free to chime in on this as well. I mean, we've talked about player ratio and map size. What about game mode? Like if there was an objective-based mode that was added to that Fortnite map, something like a, a Conquest or a Galactic Assault from Star Wars Battlefront, where you put more of the map in play for the entire match, does that too big of a map become more workable for a hundred player count? I think in a way, you know, you, you have plunder, uh, which I know that you have experience with Tim where it's an, an objective style. 
And, you know, in Call of Duty proper, in the premium uh, offering each year, they have, they called it Ground War in, in Modern Warfare, and they call it Combined Assault in, uh, in Cold War. But it's much smaller than Verdansk. It's a much smaller map than Warzone. But uh, you have a domination style, and you have 64 players on some of those maps. And you have that same feeling of battles as Verdansk, but you have a much smaller area. I think it's kind of to contend with that battlefield crowd, and it is it is a good map. But again, it's it's all based on that player ratio. Uh, when it becomes, as a community, you call it sweaty, or when it becomes fun, is dependent on how they really set those things up. A lot of people do not like the buildings, the number of buildings that are in Verdansk, but I really think it keeps the game fresh because you have so many different types of engagement throughout a game of, of Warzone. Yeah, I'd say to hop on that that for me i don't i don't play multiplayer so i don't have multiplayer on my pc so i don't play much of it and objective games on verdansk or like fortnite or something like that i think it could be doable if they did it right so they do on on warzone they'll have a it's called a warzone rumble which is basically team deathmatch on a small say 10 percent of the map size maybe 20 percent of the map size and you've got 50 people on each team so it's 100 people on this map 50 versus 50 and you each spawn on one side of this little area and you, you battle across a big open field or, you know, buildings or whatever it may be. And that's way too small for the amount of people that are there. So if there was an objective objective style war zone map, that didn't have a gas factor. They would definitely need to make it bigger than their war zone rumble and probably limit the amount of players. I don't know. I think the war zone rumble is too hectic and chaotic, even a regular multiplayer mode. So I said, I don't play multiplayer enough to really know if it would be good or not. I, I love Domination. Domination is the only multiplayer mode that I do play. I think a Warzone-style map with maybe 50 people on each side would be too big. They'd have to find a way to shrink it. So I don't, I don't know. if I don't, I don't feel like I have a great answer for this, but I, do, I feel like it's not ready for it yet. There needs to be some more practice with it or something on the war zone end of it. I don't know if Fortnite's ever done anything. Like I said, I just started playing it. So with the combined assaults, it's kind of like domination, but you kind of push your uh, line, so to speak. So you push the front line. It's more tug of warish, And so each team works across the map, but to unlock the next hard point, you have to collect the nearest hard point to you. So you work toward the other people's spawn or, or away from it. And it's a pretty nice little tug of war. And I think something like that would work in Verdansk. But something like domination, where you just hold down a bunch of different points, you know, of course, would just it'd be way too big for. Honestly, they should if they're going to do something like that, like in Warzone, they need to go back to the Battlefield 1942 days, or, or Star Wars. Um, Star, what's the I'm brain fart. Front. Star Wars, uh, what's it called? Battlefront. Battlefront. Battlefront, where there's each each side has a certain amount of lives, and you can keep playing. And once those lives are done, you start dwindling people off. I think if Warzone added that aspect to it, it might be cool. I think that's a defining uh, attribute of dice games. Uh, that might be hard to pull off without uh, uh, without getting called out on it by EA. I like the idea. I mean, that, that would be a good Probably. way to spice it up. We've got our story. We've got our side stories. We've got our map. Now we've got all the other things that go into the world because what open world would be considered complete without a whole bunch of extra stuff scattered with that throughout that world? Uh, Chad, I know you've got a lot. You can chime in on this, but I'm going to call on Aaron first. You know, Additional things, collectibles, Easter eggs, side games, settlements. What pulls you in? Easter 
when you're done doing the main story? Easter eggs. Easter Easy, eggs. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite one? Let's see. So Ghost of Tsushima, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, I got three in Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, one is immediately once you beat the game, I won't say what it is because it's still a fairly new game, uh, but there's a table in a room that you wake up in essentially, and it has a reference to all of Sucker Punch's other games. So if you take that time and kind of look at the table, uh, there's origami on the table and it references all the other games. There's an origami for each of them. Um, another one that's in the game is actually one of the uh, one of the trophies that you can get. I talked about Sly Cooper being the game I really liked the other day, and you can get a trophy for getting gear that makes your character kind of look like Sly Cooper. And then there's a headband that you. Yeah, that was a cool. That's a really cool one. And surprisingly, it's one of the harder based on the amount of people has um, have achieved that trophy to unlock. Um, And the other Easter egg that I really liked from that game is a headband that you can get. That is a reference to uh, infamous second son. I don't think I know this one. Oh, one I'm not going to spoil it. Talk, talk to me about that. Later. I, might, I might have it. I might have no. it, but you know, talk to me about there that is a, there's a, there's um, a um, headband. That's a reference to that, which is pretty cool, but there's those ones. Um, I know that we talked a little bit about the side missions. I feel like side missions are also a good segue to kind of bring you into those. If you notice them or not, um, cyberpunk had a pretty cool one that I really enjoyed, uh, which is a reference to portal which I mentioned the other day when we were talking about the cyberpunk one. So I won't delve too much into that, but it's a, basically a nod to the main villain of the portal games. Do you know that uh, Kojima is wandering around the world night city? Oh yeah. I'll send you guys a picture. I took a selfie with him. Character. There's also Kojima nods. He makes his way around the, uh, the gaming community. Kojima is also in horizon zero dawn. There are three items specifically linked to his studio. I think he's also in Forza or one of those racing games. When you finish a race, he's sitting in the stands. He makes his way into a lot of games. People like throwing him in there because he's a recognizable face in the gaming community. And we talked about this last week, how CDPR likes to throw a lot of pop culture references into their games. Uh, I mentioned the Pulp Fiction reference. Uh, that was a whole series of dialogue from scene in Pulp Fiction. But um, I mentioned earlier in this episode that I, I am a military veteran. Uh, I was stationed in Fort Bragg and there's one particular Easter egg in Ghost Recon Wildlands that actually had me spit what I was drinking across the room and I had, a, I was mashing the options button trying to record the sound bite. There's a certain gentleman's establishment that used to be a very popular place in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I lost all my guys to it every Tuesday afternoon for, uh, for lunch chow. Cause they had a buffet, um, Sharky's cabaret. And when you're driving around, no, no, honestly, I, I did not attend hepatitis C is scratch and sniff on the walls there. Um, and they got raided and shut down a few years ago. Yeah. There's people that are crying in Fayetteville still about this, but as you're driving around Bolivia, Holt, the youngest operator on your team, you know, they have banter back and forth as they go. And Holt chimes in is like, man, I can't wait to get back to Fayetteville and Sharkies and get a black and tan. Like they made an accurate reference to where these guys were stationed based on the community that I'm sure went over the heads of 99.9% of the people playing that. I mean, I'll have to send you guys the clip for it, but I mean, that, that is not only, that's not a pop culture reference. That is like a military community in this particular community reference. That's impressive. That's cool. Send us that, send us that clip. If you um, other Easter eggs I really like are either the dev rooms or the museums that they can throw in the games, which we could probably do an entire episode just based on that. Um, 
but I know there is a dev room that's hidden in Cyberpunk, just because that's a game that we've all kind of stumbled on right now. Uh, there's not much to it, but it has a list of all the dev names, and you have to have a code to get into the room. But there's a hidden dev room inside of the game. My favorite Easter egg to hunt for, or that I that I found, was the one in Cyberpunk that we talked about last week that had the the reference to the story from The Office. The Office is like my wife and I's. Once the kids go to bed, sit on the couch and relax. We always watch The Office. We have it on DVD, and we just rotate through the DVDs if there's nothing else to watch. And that uh, that one, it was definitely a side mission. It was a side mission. I think I haven't traversed more into it. But that one that had The Office storyline in it is hands down probably my in the top five of Easter eggs for me. I would say maybe maybe top three. That one actually really my gears well and i thought it was really awesome so can we just take a second to appreciate the fact that easter eggs serve no purpose other than to make a smile that's the only reason they're there just to make you happy yeah and let me give you give a shout out to the battlefield community for the easter eggs that go into that game i mean there's some off the wall stuff that they put into those apps i mean the megalodon chase two games gnomes trolls um morse code all over the place um they had a stairway that went to nowhere that unlocked a special uh cosmetic for characters in the most recent battlefield 5. i spent weeks doing the peacekeeper easter egg in battlefield 1. i mean we're talking hours of looking for symbols on maps and trying to translate morse code just to find a revolver at the end of the game's life cycle Anyone else done like an off the wall, crazy Easter egg that you invested way too much time than, than you're willing to admit other than here, of course, 120 stars on March Super Mario 64 to go see Yoshi on the top of the castle. I'll do it. That'll do it. <laughs> well, other than Easter eggs, another big one that I really enjoy. And I know Seth does a little bit of it too, is going to be the photo mode. I know we talked a little bit about our group text last week. I feel like I speak to you guys with my photos sometimes with the amount that I send you. I'm going to be real honest. I send you about a quarter of the ones I actually take. I have to sit there and say to myself, is it worth sending them this picture? I have to say my life's been a little empty over the past few days when you haven't sent them. So. Oh, okay. Good to know. Because I was about to say, I haven't seen it in a few days. And I feel like you've... Uh, oh, like I'm so us. sorry, guys. Let me send you one right now. Continue your conversation. <laughs> Crafting is what I thought you were going to bring up there. Uh, you know, crafting plays a huge role in a lot of these games. No, I'm a little uh, vain. I like taking pictures. But, uh, you know, in Cyberpunk, I know you've mentioned crafting the ammo and such, but, you know, crafting guns is a huge deal. You know, in, in Skyrim is probably where I did the most crafting. But the thing about crafting is crafting also leads to a lot of glitches. And, you know, you've mentioned some that Cyberpunk has had, but in Skyrim, you could craft and enchant till you got to the point you had an arrow that would just kill anything. And I actually killed my enjoyment of the game because I created an arrow that would just take out anything. Giants, dragons, one shot, one kill. And, uh, you know, but it's a lot of fun when done right, uh, because sometimes you can't find what you're looking for, but you can make it yourself. And there's always something, you know, I'm kind of a bit of a maker in real life. So being able to make in games, uh, you know, adds an extra aspect that, again, with these open world games, each person can tell their own story, play their own story. Crafting gets unnoticed by a lot of people, but it's a lot of fun when done right. I think also with crafting, it's your only chance to get those really OP weapons. 
and some of the games kind of talking like cyberpunk and including in the Assassin's Creed games, just upgrade all your gear. It's the only way that you're going to get ridiculously overpowered, which is better saved for the end game. Kind of like what Seth was talking about. Once you get that arrow that you can basically kill everything in one shot, it's not really fun, but it is once you've already finished everything. Now, I know a lot of people have a love hate relationship with this next item, but what about collectibles? All that random crap you have to find to fulfill some random side quest. The most annoying one I can think of was the feathers in Assassin's Creed 2. Oh, gosh. Am I going to get a trophy yes. for it? Yeah. If I get a trophy, I'll do it. I have to and get one every. Works. I have to get every bobblehead in Fallout when I'm playing. So, and then you know, in your little Fallout shelter, you can put them on a little the mantle or whatever, and you have all your bobbleheads sitting there. So, yes, depends on the collectible. I will say, feathers in Assassin's Creed Two. I don't think I finished, but all the bobbleheads, I will search and find them. If need be, Google now, here's the where they are. For now, here's the question for you guys. Do you guys enjoy collecting the collectibles for the sake of doing it, or do you enjoy getting the trophy or the achievement trophy for finally getting them all? Achievement, for sure. I don't know about you guys, but my Xbox, and I haven't played my Xbox since May when I built my PC, but I had 90,000 gamer score on there. So achievements are a big thing for me. Now I have my Steam achievements that I have to work on. To me, it depends on the game. If I enjoy the game and I enjoy the world, I enjoy collecting in the world. Uh, I don't care about the achievements necessarily. Uh, you know, in Skyrim, I actually modded my game where I had a basement in solitude where I had an armory and I was collecting every weapon in the game and I was collecting every guard's uniform for all of the cities. And so I actually had, you know, dummies in there that I could put the guard uniforms on and display them. You know, without that mod being able to actually spread those out, it wouldn't have been as much fun for me. You know, if you just had them in a chest, just sitting there and you could go back through your item list. Uh, I don't find that much interesting, but like Chad was saying, when you can put your bobbleheads on a display or, or like I did with that mod, then it starts, starts enticing and, and I start pushing after it. I do the same thing in breath of the wild, which can we talk about how we've gone through an almost an entire episode and about open world and never mentioned breath of the wild. Impressed. We've been, we've been here for a hot minute and this is the first time it's come up. I don't know to be impressed or a little disappointed, but yeah, you have your house in Breath of the Wild where you can display all your weapons. And I like to take all the um, the weapons for all the guardians and that's where they go. I don't use those weapons. They go up on my wall and they're proudly displayed. Because you're proud you've got them or you're afraid they're going to break when you really need them. The second. <laughs> I don't want to break them. They're my fragile items in my house. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. I mean, we've gone cradle to grave on a lot of these big topics that make an open world game what it is and you know what we expect it to be in 2020. Uh, overall, I mean, what are your collective opinions as a group, as a podcast on the state of this genre? Uh, Chad, I mean, we'll lead off with you. The state of the genre, I think it's, I think it's going in the right direction. I think cyberpunk, if you forget the glitches and you just look at the overall open world aspect of that game with the side missions, the main missions, the help the police quests, you know, the find the tarot card graffiti, all that kind of stuff. And if you look at, which I haven't played yet, Valhalla, I've seen enough video on that and watched and read enough reviews. Like these games are huge games that are immersive and they take a while to beat. And that's what, like one thing about today's society, it's, it's an age of instant gratification and video games have not gone to there yet. Now, there are some that probably are, but when you think about these games that are like 
meaty, like blockbuster type of games, you can't beat them in, in one sitting like you used to. You know, you have to spend time and invest in them. And it's really, you know, you think of modern culture and society, you know, you want to you want to know the ending of Mandalorian now before, you know, and even though you haven't watched anything, you know, you don't want to waste time doing that. These video games kind of still hold us back from that, in my opinion. And these open world games are doing a great job of keeping, in my mind, that aspect of you got to work hard to achieve something, to beat something. It takes a long time. And I, I like where it's going. Still waiting for my Oregon Trail open world game. One day. Maybe you could learn how to make um, video games and that could be your first game. Not, maybe, but I know. Don't start with that. Don't start with that one. Start small. (laughs) Um, As far as for me, I'm going to just say that open world games have gotten so big that it's like 50 50 down the middle. Either it's an open world game or it's not. And for me to sit here and name off 10 open world games would probably be easier than to name off 10 games that aren't open world that are out right now. It's just such a big genre. There's so many games that fall into this median that it's almost expected. And when it's not, you kind of have a different set of expectations for it. No, I'm going to echo that a little bit. I think uh, open world games have bled over so much into story mode games that we've gotten confused on our expectations. You know, I think there's very few games that are locking you into a rigid playthrough now. Even games like The Division, you know, you see there's there's definitely a sort of a linear point to that game, but they put it into an open world city. You know, with the Batman games, there's an open world aspect, but it's still very linear because it's still telling a story. Everybody's going to play and everybody's going to have the same ending in the same way. You know, if we look back at the definition we described earlier in the podcast, and we talked about the fact that your choices freely affect the game. And I think so many people have used this open world concept of allowing the player to freely move through the world and have not give the free choice of how to play the game that this uh, genre has gotten very blurred you know this genre used to be a sole aspect of rpg games but no more is it only in rpg games you've seen a lot of action adventure games come over to it red dead redemption 2 for one wonderful open world game one of my favorite games of the last couple of years is it truly open world with that option of free choice it's more like gta in that my arthur morgan is probably different than your arthur morgan you know i probably chose a, a nicer arthur morgan than maybe your your renegade arthur morgan but at the same time is that game truly open world or is it a story action adventure you know i think the genre's kind of gotten blurred but i think that the continued advances in technology have really opened the the windows and doors for what this genre can do in the coming years. And you're talking about like having the options and your choices that affect your character and the outcome of the character. I think that it started to grow so much that gamers as a community have had the expectation that that should be something that's provided for us in almost every single game. And it shouldn't be that way, but it's starting to become that. Um, it's not an open world game, but I'm going to throw it out there because it's the first one that popped in my head. You have Jedi Fallen Order, where at the end of the game, I read through the community's posting about it, and a lot of people were saying, I wish I had the option to be a dark Jedi, or I wish I had the option to become a Sith. I wish I had the option to do this. Well, no, they created a story-based game, and this is how the game was supposed to be. Not every game has to be about your options and how it's going to end. Sometimes you just have to enjoy it, kind of like a movie. It's going to have the same ending. Right. Yeah, and largely just to summarize, um, I think there was a point where 
the genre was spinning rapidly out of control and it had no identity. Uh, they were making bigger games with longer stories, with more things to do just for the sake of having them. And I think what happened to Ubisoft in the last couple of years really caused a lot of developers to take a step back and say, all right, you know, what are we here for? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to tell a story with these open elements? Or are we trying to create an open-ended experience in an open world? Or are we trying to create an RPG? And it's created subgroups within the genre. I think we need to continue heading in the direction of your Spider-Mans, your Miles Moraleses, your Ghost of Tsushima's, less towards your Watchdog Ones and your Ghost Recon Breakpoints. You need to feel immersed in that world. You need to feel connected with the environment, the people that are in it, and know why you're there and what's going on with it. It could take any one of those three paths, that RPG path, that choice path, or that set story path. Either way, you still need to have that sense of immersion, that sense of belonging to that world. So as we get ready to wrap up this episode, gentlemen, are there any final thoughts for our listeners? I got three. <laughs> they don't really have to do with the listeners, so sorry, guys. But one, Seth, we didn't talk about what's your background. I did say it. Oh, did you? Of it. Sorry. <laughs> Ruined. Um, and two, Tim, you got to appear on a guest as a guest on another podcast this week. I did. I got to be a guest on the Disney Dads podcast. I had a great time talking with Justin and Mike about Disney gaming. It was quite an experience. Awesome. Yeah, you did a great job. So talking about Disney and video games is a lot more extensive than I even thought about when I told him that he should have you on there. You did a great job. If you guys haven't checked it out, Disney Dad's podcast, go and listen to them. That is actually how all of us met, which may be a story for another day. And three, for you guys, thank you for changing for tonight. We're recording on a different night. Thank you for being flexible for me. So came in last second and put all this together on a shorter basis than we even normally would. Not a problem. Yeah, no worries. Our invoices are in the mail and you've got 30 days. <laughs> it just gives us more time to prepare for next week's episode. You get an extra day. You're welcome. Happy holidays to everybody. So we just um, passed Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas for everybody. And any holiday that you're celebrating, happy holidays. I hope that you guys have a great time. I know we'll be spending some time with our families this week. This will be the last time uh, we get a chance to record before Christmas. Uh, I think we've got one more show on the docket before the new year. So, yeah. yeah. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Yeah, this is a great episode. I love talking about this. And I think next week's episode is going to be even better. I like the topic for next week. So I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Right. And as we get ready to prepare for that next week's episode, if everyone could do us a huge favor and give us five stars and a little bit of a high five over on Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested, please join us on our Facebook page. That's E through M Gamers. We're building the community. We're not only putting out content here, we've got that Facebook page and we'll be able to get you over to our Discord server as well if you are so inclined. So with that, Gentlemen, once again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking with us about Open Worlds tonight. And for everyone at home listening to us, thank you very much. And we'll see you soon. Later, guys. Have a good night. See you. Good night.